Hey everybody, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is episode two of Another Kingdom. Be sure to head over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber to get early access to our episodes ad-free. In episode one, Austin was searching for his sister Riley when Orozco's thug billiard ball found him in his motel room. After a vicious fight, Austin killed the killer, but then the cops showed up, and as Austin tried to escape, he was whisked back to another kingdom. There, he traveled to the land of Egemund, where he entered a village where there were no women, only bizarre, sexless men he called the eunuch zombies. After eating in their tavern, he realized he'd been poisoned, and he collapsed, unconscious. And now, episode two of Another Kingdom, performed by Michael Knowles. What followed was dreadful. I couldn't move, but I was wide awake. I could see everything, but I saw it through a distorting, druggy haze that gave it all a confused, unreal quality. I watched, powerless, as they came for me. The room filled with a low, muttering chant. All the villagers in the tavern, all the eunuch zombies, were chanting together in some language I could not understand. The sound had a deep, heavy, ritualistic quality to it, like some ancient prayer. The first thought that came into my mind was that the villagers were making ready for a sacrifice. The second thought that came into my mind, the realization of who exactly the sacrifice was going to be, filled me with such raging terror that I wanted to scream at my body to move, to run. But I couldn't scream. I couldn't run. I just lay there crumpled on the tavern floor like a marionette with cut strings. Shuffling with slow ceremony, the villagers gathered around me. The mayor stood at my feet. He lifted his hands in the air as if in supplication to some unseen being. Earth is earth and water is water, he intoned. We are flesh and you are power. Every son will be your daughter. Every death will be your hour. These were the only words I understood. The rest was gibberish. My eyes, the only part of me I could control at all, darted wildly from one villager to another. In my up-spiraling panic, through the wavery fog that filled my mind, their faces seemed to morph and liquefy. At one moment, they all had the same bland, doll-like, castrati features, but in the next, the air seemed to ripple over them, melting their flesh until they appeared like cadaverous monstrosities, risen, half-rotten from their graves. Then they solidified into villagers again, and so on, back and forth. As the mayor led them in their incomprehensible chant, Four of them squatted down next to me, two on each side. In my brain, my speechless brain, I was grunting with horror at their shifting, changing faces. I was urging my body to writhe away from them, but I could not move. The four eunuch zombies lifted me into the air. The others gathered around them, chanting. The mayor turned his back and, with his hands still lifted, led the parade to the tavern door, which two of the other zombies held open. Earth is earth and water is water, he said again. Chanting, they carried me out of the tavern. Full night had fallen. A gibbous moon was rising to one side of the chalk hills. The moonlight was very bright. It washed the sky starless. My panicky gaze turning everywhere, I saw that the village, like the villagers themselves, seemed to shift and change behind the wavering curtain of the atmosphere. At first, the houses and shops and outbuildings all remained the same. 
But then the air shifted, and their facades melted away to reveal the ruin and the death beneath. The buildings were charred and broken. The fields in the moonlit night were white with rot. The crops were crawling with devouring insects, insects so large they were visible even at a distance. And my stallion? Where was my black stallion? Gone from the hitching rail outside the tavern. My thoughts were so scrambled and hysterical in my powerless body, I imagined for a moment they had killed the beast and butchered him, served him to me in the pie. But that was impossible, wasn't it? The procession moved away from the tavern, down the street toward the edge of the town. The mayor led the march. The four men carried me like a corpse to burial. The rest of the eunuch zombies swarmed around us, chanting in those dreadful, deep, toneless voices. We passed through the stubble fields. The moon glow lit the swarms of gigantic mantises so I could see them crunching at the rotted gleanings with their enormous mandibles and nearly human eyes. I was carried along in the maddeningly slow procession for what seemed like forever. We were outside the town now, beyond the fields, approaching the chalky hills that looked almost white in the light of the low-hanging moon. At the foot of those hills, I saw an opening in the earth, a wide crevasse or sinkhole. Some greenish steam was rising out of it. The steam made the slimy vegetation curling over the crevasse's rim stir and tremble as if it were animate. When the smell of the steam reached me, I gagged. The steam was full of rot and sulfur, as if it had blown up from hell by way of the grave. The eunuch zombies laid me in the dust and weeds at the edge of the opening. The rotten steam wrapped itself around me until I felt I would suffocate in the stench. The mayor looked down at me complacently with his white, bright eyes and V-shaped grin. Two other men knelt beside me. The two men held a harness tied to a heavy rope. They worked the harness over my shoulders and under my arms. My heart was beating so hard I thought it would explode in my chest. With all the villagers still chanting, four of them lifted my limp body again. Two men held the rope and braced their feet in the dust. The others lowered me into the crevasse. The hot, stinking gas enveloped me until I could barely see anything but green steam everywhere. They fed the rope into the hole and I descended through the miasmic darkness, deeper and deeper into the abyss. The chanting up above grew dim, then faded to silence. My arms began to twitch. Whatever potion they had given me was wearing off, and my muscles were beginning to work again. And still I went down. After a while, I lost all sense of movement. I just seemed to dangle there in the curling steam. Finally, my toes and then my feet touched bottom. The tension of the rope slackened, and I crumpled up like a cloth dummy and fell to the stony earth, face down. Above the hissing sound of gas, I heard myself groan. It was the first noise I had made since I'd collapsed in the tavern. The rope came coiling down out of the upper darkness and plumped heavily on top of me. My whole body was shivering now. I gritted my teeth and tried to move. I did it. I rolled over onto my side. God, what a relief it was to feel my body responding to the call of my brain. I craned my neck to get a look at my surroundings. It was strange. I could see down here. This far beneath the surface, it should have been pitch black, but there was a sickly yellowish glow coming off the surrounding walls. At first, the green fog was so thick I couldn't make out anything except its twisting skeins and complications. Then, though, a draft from above swirled over me and the miasma drifted and cleared. Oh, what I saw then. What horror. I was in a cave filled with corpses. Beneath the narrow opening of the crevasse, 
The rock room opened up around me in a nearly perfect circle. In the unnatural light coming off the stones, I saw the bodies everywhere. They were piled along the walls and on the floor and close beside me. Women. Dead women. All women, some of their bodies incomplete, some torn, some rotted to broken skeletons with only a hank of hair or the remnants of a dress to show what sex they'd been. They were piled up in haphazard mounds. Their limbs were stretched out toward me. Those that had faces seemed to be screaming in agony and fear. Groaning again, I managed to push off the stone floor and sit up a little. I brought my hands to the harness around me and slowly worked it over my head. I tossed the thing aside. It dropped down onto the pile of dead women next to me. I lifted my gaze, trying to see whatever I could through the fetid air. I saw the crevasse above me, a narrow slit leading up and up to the nearly invisible night. Were the villagers leaning over the rim up there, watching me? I didn't know. It was too far to see, too dark. I lowered my eyes. My gaze passed over the piles and piles of corpses. I looked at the walls. They were smooth and greasy and gave off that dull yellow light. The stenchy steam was drifting up through pores and cracks in the floor. It hissed as it rose. It caught the light and glowed. There was a small opening in the wall to my left, like a mouse hole for an enormous mouse. And there was another, much larger opening to my right, a broad archway that led into a rocky corridor. Was it an escape route? I thought it might be. My eyes returned to the dead. This, I understood now, was where all the village women had gone. The women and the girl children too, judging by the sizes of some of the bodies. They had been lowered down here and then... Then they had been slaughtered, torn to pieces. I could see that some of their corpses had been partially eaten. So I was right. This was a place of sacrifice. But sacrifice to whom? To what? What awful creature was down here with me? The very second that question entered my mind, the answer came. The earth shook underneath me. I heard a thunderous pounding from deep within the foggy corridor to my right. One reverberating thud, and then another, and then another after that. It was the sound of footsteps, the footsteps of something monstrous. And, whatever it was, it was slowly coming toward me. Another moment, another heavy footstep, and I saw the beast through the yellowish light. I saw the shape of it, at least. A hulking, crouched in lizardy shadow, black and gigantic against the luminous mist. A noise escaped my throat, a choked and whimpery whine of fear. Once again, I could hear Maud screeching at me in my mind. Be a man! And I thought, screw you, squirrel girl. You're not the one about to be devoured. But she, this Maud of my imagination, had a point. My body still felt helpless and dead, a suit of concrete flesh hanging on the weak framework of my paralyzed muscles. But one look around me at the heaps of torn female corpses, at their skeletal, half-rotten faces, frozen in their final expressions of terror, and I knew I had to do whatever I could to avoid their fate. There weren't a lot of options. With the walls so smooth and slippery, I couldn't climb back up the crevasse. I couldn't go down the corridor where the beast was approaching either. That meant there was only one way out, through that narrow little mouse hole on the far wall. I didn't know if I could reach it. I didn't know if I could fit into it if I did reach it. I didn't know if it would lead anywhere if I did fit into it. It didn't matter. I had to go for it. What other choice was there but to sit and wait for this thing to get me? I tried to stand. I couldn't. I was too weak. I fell back onto my butt. 
The thunderous footsteps moved faster down the corridor. The shadow of the beast grew larger and larger through the mist. The cave floor trembled under me with every move the creature made. Grunting with exertion, gagging on the stench, I began to crawl for the mouse hole. I reached out and grabbed hold of half a dead woman. My fingers sank into the decomposing substance of her hip. I pulled myself up over the ruin of her and grabbed some bones and pushed with my rubbery legs and tumbled over a face frozen in its final scream to spill down the far side of the charnel pile. All the while, the cave shook more, the footsteps resounded louder, and now, now a roar filled the cramped space, a roar that sounded dreadfully like a chorus of shrieking women. I sobbed with terror at the sound and pulled and pushed myself another yard and then another, climbing over more bodies, coming closer, inch by slow, painful inch, to the narrow aperture in the far wall. But I was growing stronger as I went. The potion was wearing off, and enough adrenaline was pumping through me to bring even a dead man back to life. I started moving faster. The beast behind me shrieked again, a thousand women shrieking. Its footsteps grew even louder, the sound exploding through the little space of the cave. The world around me was shaking so hard it seemed that it would shake itself apart. But somehow, I made it. I was at the mouse hole. A woman's body sat beside it, propped against the wall. I could feel her staring at me, which was bizarre because she had no head. I reached out and grabbed hold of the opening in the stone. I dragged myself toward it. The next roar was so loud, I was sure the creature would be on me any second. On instinct, I looked back over my shoulder. Just then, gigantic, the beast broke through the mist and came charging out of the corridor. I saw it, lit by the yellow light from the walls, shaded by the miasmic green. It was a thing so dreadful it made my mind go blank. My brain simply couldn't handle it, couldn't take it in. I could not let myself see what I saw or I'd go raving mad. I panicked, gibbering wildly, my eyes wide. I scrabbled and scraped my way into the mouse hole, tearing at the rock walls with my fingernails. I could hear the beast's footsteps coming after me as I pulled myself deeper into the passage, moving as fast as I could. The corridor was low and small, so tight I could barely draw myself through it, but my fear propelled me on. And when, straining, I lifted my chin, I could see a little way in front of me. There was a wider opening. I could feel a fresher breeze blowing to me. There was a way out, not far, a few yards away. I thought, I can make it. Then. The beast grabbed me. It had reached into the mouse hole behind me. I screamed in terror as its fingers wrapped around my leg. I screamed in pain as its claws sank into the flesh of my calf. I tried to keep scuttling through the hole to the exit, but the great paw held me in place. Then it began to drag me back through the hole, back into the cave from which I'd just escaped. The one glimpse I'd had of the thing, the one unbearable sight of it, flashed in fragments in my mind as I clawed at the rocky floor, trying to pull myself away from it. It was no use. The beast's grip was too powerful. As desperately as I fought to go forward, I slid back, back and back across the stony corridor, trapped in the creature's clutches. Then, in one swift moment of shattering terror and despair, I came flying out of the mouse hole, and in the snap of a finger, I was in the motel again in the motel outside Salinas, dashing through the door into the next room over, with billiard ball dead on the floor of the room behind me, and the police bursting in out of the parking lot, hot on my trail, shouting at the top of their lungs. I could not think. I raced across the motel room to the front door, 
billiard ball's gun in one hand, my other hand digging in my pocket for my car keys. My wounded leg was burning with agony. My mind was like a jigsaw puzzle that had been blown apart by a bomb. Pieces, images, thoughts, half-shaped mental cries of fear and pain flew every which way across my brain, randomly flashing into bright focus. One mental picture and then another lit up in my consciousness. The piles of dead women, billiard balls staring through his own blood, the beast. I couldn't hold on to any of them, to anything except my shrieking sense of urgent danger. I could hear the police shouting to one another in the room I'd just left. Where'd he go? This one's dead. The shooter went through there. Check the bathroom. Go slow, he's armed. I plunged forward through the dark motel room, ignoring the searing ache in my calf where the monster's claws had sunk into me, ignoring the images in my mind of the unimaginably horrible beast that would be dragging me into its maw the moment I found myself back in the nightmare land of Edgemond. I ignored everything, everything but the fact that the police were about to come through the door of the room behind me. Half crazy with panic, I rocketed forward. One second, maybe two, and I was at the door to the outside. I paused only a second to throw Billiard Ball's gun onto the bed behind me. The last thing I wanted was to run out into a crowd of cops with a gun in my hand. Then I ripped the door open and hurled myself out into the parking lot. Sirens were blaring through the cool autumn night. Lights were flashing. More police cruisers were bounding over the ramp of the sidewalk, careening into the lot under the motel's neon sign. But the cops themselves, the ones who were on foot, had all gone rushing into my motel room. For a moment, one moment, the path to my Camaro was clear. I could feel the blood spilling out of my leg, dampening my jeans, but I didn't look. I didn't pause. I just ran. I pressed the button on my key to pop the Camaro's door lock. I seized the handle, yanked the door open, and tumbled inside. Any second, the cops would come out of my motel room, or out of the room I'd just escaped from, or out of the cars that were even now screeching and skidding to a stop in the parking lot. The second after that, they would open fire. I jammed the key in the ignition, twisted it until the engine roared. In one coordinated motion, I pulled my legs inside and shut the door and threw the car into reverse and jammed my foot down on the gas. The car lurched backwards through a noxious cloud of burning rubber. I threw the car into drive and shot forward, away from the oncoming cop cars, toward the far edge of the lot. Over the engine noise, I heard a policeman shout. The Camaro bounded over the curb, through the air, into the street. It landed with a jouncing jolt. I spun the wheel. The car screamed and turned. There was a gunshot. One rear window snapped and went foggy behind the web of cracks. I practically stood on the gas pedal. The Camaro shot down a side road and into the shadows under the trees. The cop cars came after me, sirens screaming. I reached a crossroad. I glanced up frantically into my rearview mirror. The police weren't behind me yet. I turned the car hard, trying to get out of sight before they saw which way I'd gone. I hurtled down a residential street between two rows of parked cars. I reached a corner, turned again in a spitting cloud, anything to keep ahead of the police. I could see now. I was in a grid of residential streets, flying past one- and two-story houses, one after another on its little square of lawn. The night was loud with sirens, and the air flashed red around me. I turned another corner, and then another, trying to keep out of the law's line of sight. Then, up ahead, I saw the main drag. Streetlights, a gas station on the corner, a glow from other businesses, bars and restaurants. I knew the freeway ramp was near, but then what? Once I was on the freeway, it would only be a matter of time before the cops chased me down and surrounded me. But as I came to the corner, 
I glimpsed from the corner of my eye a small, dark house, a garage with the door open, no cars inside, no one home. I was almost past the driveway when I jammed my foot down hard on the brake and wrenched the wheel over like a ship's captain fighting high seas. I held my breath as the Camaro's rear end spun out behind me. Dust and smoke flew up around me. The headlights shone into the empty garage as I jammed the gas pedal down to the floor again. The car leapt forward into the driveway, over the driveway, into the garage. I braked. The tires screamed again. I cursed as the car skidded toward the garage's rear wall. Then it jolted to a halt just inches from a crash. I cursed again. I killed the lights. I killed the engine. I shouldered the door open and rolled out, grimacing in pain as the wounds in my leg flared up again. With the sirens screaming louder and the red lights from the cruisers growing brighter, I rushed in a limping hop to the garage door. I reached up, grabbed it, and dragged it shut with a bang. We'll get back to the story in a minute. If you're listening to this on iTunes, we really appreciate it, and we'd appreciate your five-star rating. It really helps us out. You should know also that you're missing out on the incredible work of our really talented animators and illustrators who've created an amazing visual experience on our website. So head over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber. You won't be sorry. And now, back to the story. Exhausted, I plunked down onto the garage floor out of breath. I sat there in the dark, staring at nothing. I listened to the sirens howling in the night outside like hunting hounds. What was in my mind then? Not much. A fog of fear. Lights blinking through the fog. Thoughts, images, half-formed cries and wordless terrors. The sirens grew louder. I couldn't think. I couldn't move. I just sat there, staring at nothing, listening. They were right outside the garage door. Then, all at once, the sirens shifted tone. They started fading. Their wild cries swiftly grew dimmer. The cruisers had sped past the garage. They were heading for the freeway. Soon, I heard other sirens join them. They all seemed to blend together. The whole world outside the little garage now sounded like a single, enormous wolf keening for its prey. Long moments passed. I went on sitting there, panting, staring, my thoughts in disarray. The sight of that beast in the cave, that obscene glimpse of it, it haunted me. What would I do when I opened some door somewhere and found myself once more at the bottom of the crevasse? back in the creature's clutches, yanked helplessly out of the mousehole and toward its fang-filled maw. The sirens continued fading. The night beyond the garage grew quiet. I don't know how much time went by. I don't know how long I would have gone on sitting there like that if the pain in my leg hadn't broken through my days. I looked down at myself. I saw the blood. It had soaked the bottom quarter of my left trouser leg and turned the blue denim the color of rust. I leaned forward, reached out, and pulled up the cuff of my pants. The sight of my mangled flesh sent a chill from my crotch to the nape of my neck. That creature in the cave had been no dream. The wounds left by its giant claws were far too real. In some spots, the talons had merely sliced the skin. But in two places, they had gone in deep. The black blood was still burbling out of the ragged holes like oil from the earth. I dropped back against the wall. My heart felt sour. The skills I'd learned in Galeana, the tricks of the fighting spirit, the power to feel fear without allowing fear to overcome me, the power to battle when there was no chance to win, the power to win for no other reason than that my soul was indomitable. All this seemed to have deserted me. These past hours, billiard ball, the cops, the eunuch zombies in the village, 
the piles of dead in the cave, the monster. It was too much for me. I was overwhelmed. I could not think anymore. I could not gather even enough energy to figure out what to do. Sitting there, slumped, my back to the wall, my head hanging, my hand went to my chest, to the locket there, Bethere's locket. I felt again that strange, warm power radiating off the metal into my flesh. I closed my eyes. I closed my hand around the glowing gold. It happened again. That flashing transport back into my own past. That's where I was all right, my unremembered past. For a moment, a longer moment this time than before, I was in my home again, the home I had grown up in. I could hear that hysterical child crying, screaming, upstairs, in her bedroom. I recognized that cry. It was my sister. It was Riley, Riley as a little girl. My parents, my professor mother and my professor father, were in the dining room with my brother. They were talking as they always did, with their snooty, lock-jawed tones and their big words and their complicated ideas, all of which, as I now knew, were really Serge Orozco's ideas, his blueprint for a perfect world. But I did not know that then. Back then, in this immersive memory, I was sitting in an armchair in the den. I was reading a graphic novel, some adventure story about a knight and an elfish woman in an enchanted wood. I couldn't concentrate with my sister screaming like that. She was so upset, and no one was going to help her. She screamed and screamed, and my mother, my father, my big brother, they all just went right on talking, as if they didn't hear her, as if they didn't care. Why didn't anyone care? Now I was on my feet, in this locket vision I was having. I was on my feet, laying the graphic novel aside. I was moving to the stairs, up the stairs, moving toward the sound of my little sister's hysterical cries. Why did it always have to be me? Why was I the only one who would go to her, the only one who would make the effort to comfort her? I saw me entering her little bedroom, sitting on the edge of her bed. I saw her looking up at me with her big, sad, trusting eyes shimmering with tears. I picked up her favorite book from the bedside table. Nobody listens. A drawing on the cover of a little girl running through the streets, shouting a warning. I lay down beside her, ready to read until she calmed down and fell asleep. And then, with a sort of mental flash, the connection broke. I was back in the dark garage again, sitting on the floor. The locket had gone cold. I slipped it back inside my shirt. I ran my fingers up through my sweaty hair. Strange, I thought. The way the locket took me back to that specific moment, and the way the past was still there inside my mind, even though I hadn't remembered it before. It was kind of the same as being in Galliana, like being in a story about myself that had somehow begun before I got there, a whole life already lived that only came into full existence when I experienced it. And I thought, Riley, poor little Riley, gone missing, her boyfriend Marco run off in a panic, leaving me his car, begging me to find her. She needs you. They're trying to kill us. It was all because of her series of online videos. Ouroboros, dark dreams of reality. As crazy as they were with their tales of a world-conquering conspiracy among space aliens and Templars and God knows who else, they seemed to have contained enough truth to make Orozco want her silenced, just as he wanted me silenced now too. And so she, and the videos, and maybe the manuscript of another kingdom, was gone. And she was in trouble. 
If she was still alive, that is. I could imagine her hiding somewhere, afraid, weeping, as she had been afraid and weeping that night in her bedroom so long ago. And just as on that night, there was no one to go to her, no one but me. Nobody listens. Slowly, grimacing with pain, I gathered my legs beneath me. I took hold of the garage walls and pulled myself to my feet. I rolled the garage door up, peeked out at the suburban street. All the cop cars were gone, and all their sirens too. The night was quiet, and yet I could almost hear Riley crying for me. I hobbled to the car. I had to find her. I took the long way north. You wouldn't believe how long. Two-lane roads through wooded nowheres. Spidery, thread-like lanes through half-abandoned towns. Long, winding climbs up desert mountains. Dusty wilderness trails past scraggly trees. I had to get some maps at a gas station to find the way. Maps, I know, right? Paper maps that fold up and everything. Who uses those anymore? I had to stop at three places before I could even find some. But a GPS could be traced and I needed to stay invisible because there must have been a million cops looking for me out there in the great spaces of the autumn night. It was late, almost 10 o'clock, when I cruised into Walnut Creek. It was a leafy suburban town, not far from where my parents lived in Berkeley. My sister had a job here, if you could call it that. She was a part-time actress at the nearby Happy Town theme park. She played a rag doll at the souvenir stands there, or a farm girl at the petting zoo, or sometimes something scary at the Halloween horror walk. I had seen a billboard for the horror walk along my journey, a picture of a frightened woman looking over her shoulder as she stepped unwitting into the clutches of a waiting witch. The witch, that would be Riley. That was how she paid her rent and financed her videos, that and borrowing money from our reluctant parents. The town was quiet, not much traffic. Everyone indoors, I guessed, getting ready for bed. It made me nervous to be the only car on the streets. Surely the police would have put my license plate out on their networks by now. If I passed even a single cop car, the red lights and siren would come on and the chase would start again. I had never visited Riley at home before. I had never seen her apartment. But using my maps, I made my way there on the back roads. I came to a depressing cul-de-sac near a bunch of office parks, skyscrapers abandoned for the night. On one side of the little road, there was a long wooden building painted some unnameable shade of brown with dark brown shingles on the roof on top of it. It seemed a drab and sorrowful place. I was afraid to park, afraid to leave my car on the street lest a passing policeman spot it and come after me. But driving around behind the apartment building, I found a long macadam lane that ran past a series of garages with closed doors. It looked as if the doors would open at the touch of a remote control button. On a guess, I reached over and opened the Camaro's glove compartment. Sure enough, what do you know, Marco had left me a remote control buried under some papers. Not just a remote control either. There was a set of keys in there as well. I drove slowly down the lane behind the apartment building. I pressed the button on the remote each time I passed one of the garage doors. On the third try, a door groaned and rolled up and open. I drove into the garage and closed the door behind me. Here was a safe place to park where the police wouldn't see the car. One of Marco's keys let me into the building's stairwell. I limped up the stairs, clinging to the cold metal banister. My wounded calf was throbbing. Every few steps or so, I left a small streak of blood on one of the carpeted stairs. Riley's apartment was on the third floor, the top floor. 
I cracked the stairwell door and peeked out to make sure the hole was empty. It was, though I could hear some thumping music coming through one of the doors at the hallway's end. I slipped out of the well, stepped quickly to the second door on my left. Luckily, the hallway runner had a dark floral pattern. If I made any more bloody footprints here, they didn't show. I opened the door and hesitated. The last two times I had entered Fantasyland, I had seen it through the doorway before I made the transition. But would that always be the case? If it wasn't, if I went through a door and suddenly passed back into that other kingdom unsuspecting, I would have only a single second before the beast in the cave drew me to itself and ripped my head off. Well, all the same, if I was going to find Riley, I had to go in. I held my breath, stepped across the threshold, and shut the door behind me. I felt for the light switch in the darkness, turned on the lights. My breath came out of me in a long hiss. I leaned against the door, still holding the knob behind my back. I looked the place over. I recognized the space from my video calls with Riley, but it had never looked like this. Someone had ransacked the apartment. Some of Orozco's thugs, no doubt, searching for another kingdom. I didn't know why the billionaire wanted the book, but I knew he did. I knew he was willing to kill for it. The studio was a mess. The TV screen was smashed. The bedside radio, likewise. The rest of Riley's electronics, phone, computer, and so on, were nowhere to be seen. The mattress had been pulled half off the bed. It had been slid open. Handfuls of the inner foam were lying on the floor beneath it. All Riley's books had been pulled off the shelves, strewn on her writing desk or on the carpet. Some of them were mangled, their spines broken, their pages torn or crumpled into balls. Her clothes, those ripped jeans and t-shirts and frilly peasant tops that made her look like she was still a little girl, had been pulled out of the closet and out of the dresser drawers. Some of the blouses had been ripped, some of the dresses cut into pieces. The childlike underwear she wore on her boyish figure had been shredded. I had been afraid before, anxious for Riley's safety before, but now my anxiety flared up, wild. The scene was so violent, the damage so viciously done, it made me wonder, had my little sister escaped these goons? Or had they dragged her out of here and done the same sort of violence to her? I tried to calm myself. I told myself that Riley had sent Marco to find me, so she must have escaped. She must still be alive. She must be. Taking a deep breath, I moved away from the door. I stepped carefully through the wreckage, eyeing the brutalized clothes and furnishing. I was looking for something. I didn't know what. Clearly, if the pages of another kingdom had still been here when Orozco's thugs arrived, they would have found them. I guess I was just looking for some clue, hoping Riley had left me some clue to where she'd gone. I tiptoed around among the ruined clothes and the gutted books. I didn't see anything useful. Not at first. But then I spotted a large volume lying on its face, its aqua blue binding spread eagle, its pages ripped out and scattered on the floor. It was one of Riley's crazy conspiracy books. Are aliens already among us? But that wasn't what caught my eye. It was the little triangle of laminated paper sticking out from underneath it. Something seemed familiar about it. I bent down and lifted the blue book. Underneath it was another book, small, thin, an old paperback children's book with a drawing on the cover, a little girl running through the streets, shouting a warning. Nobody listens. I gazed down at it. That book. That same book I had read to Riley the night she was crying. That night I had forgotten until I touched Bethere's talisman and it returned to my memory. Either this was a coincidence or there was magic in it. 
I had to bet on magic. I tossed the aqua blue book aside and picked up the smaller volume. I hoisted the eviscerated mattress back onto its frame, sat down on the edge of it. I thumbed through the pages of Nobody Listens. In the quiet, I could hear the thumping music from down the hall coming through the walls. Now, that long-ago night came back to me again. Not like before. Not through the magic of the locket, but just through the familiar touch of the book's laminated cover, a visceral trigger to my memory. I remembered how Riley's screaming subsided the moment I appeared in her bedroom doorway. I remembered her little girl smell as I bent down to kiss the top of her head, her wispy, straw-colored hair. I'll read to you a while if you stop your crying, Riley. She forced herself to stop with a pitiable sniffle. What's the matter anyway? I asked her. Did you have a nightmare? She gave a mournful nod, her eyes still running, her lips pulled down in a childish frown. Was it because of Uncle Rusty? Uncle Rusty, yes, I remembered now. He had been a friend of my parents, the chairman of the psychology department in which my father worked. He was one of the few academics who had been kind to us children or had noticed us at all. And he had recently killed himself, poisoned himself. Rusty Winkleman, that was his name. My father had been the one who found Uncle Rusty's body. It was an ugly scene, apparently. He had described it to my mother in disgusting detail. Riley wasn't around when he told the story. But you never knew about Riley. She had a way of overhearing things, of knowing things she wasn't supposed to know. But she had shaken her head when I asked her about it. It wasn't that. The movie scared me, she said. What movie? She wouldn't answer me. Read me the story, Oss. That was all she said. Sitting there now in the ransacked room, I read the book again. It was a picture book about a little girl named Susie who liked to make up stories. She made up so many fantastic tales that no one would believe her when she came downstairs one day to tell her mother there was a dragon under her bed. But there was a dragon, there really was. Nobody listens. One corner of my mouth lifted. It was ironic. Riley had grown up to make her kooky Ouroboros videos her outlandish stories of aliens and humans working together to take over the world. Nobody had listened to her because the stories were so obviously false. But maybe they were false and true at the same time, a false version of the truth, like a parable. As I scanned the book, I remembered reading it to her in her bed. I remembered the big blue eyes in her round face, eyes trained not on the pictures on the pages, but on me. I guess it must have comforted her to see me there, because by the time I got to the end of the book, she was asleep. I sighed. Holding the book open on my lap, I looked up at the mess of her apartment. My heart felt hollow. I loved my sister. I always had. She was broken now, crazy now, lost. She was so wrapped in her fantastic conspiracies, it made her careless and selfish. She wasted her girlish romantic fervor on jerks like Marco. But I loved her anyway and I felt for her, pitied her in retrospect for how scared she had been that night and how no one had come to comfort her but me. No one ever came to comfort her but me. Where was my mother to mother her? I thought to myself angrily. My mother, that indifferent and brittle woman, all theories and ideas and words, 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 and not so much as a kiss on the forehead to warm a child's heart by. Where was she when Riley needed her? And where was Riley now? I glanced down at the book, still open on my knees. 
That's when I spotted the drawing. It was made in pencil, scribbled lightly on the upper right-hand corner of the page. I hadn't noticed it before because it wasn't any recognizable shape. But now that it caught my eye, I saw that it wasn't a mere doodle either. It was carefully made, an intricate design. I turned the page. There was another design on the corner there, and another design on the next page. I realized then what it was. There was this trick, a trick I'd taught my sister when we were young. If you drew different parts of a scene on the corner of each page of a pad, when you flipped the pages quickly, the full scene would appear, an optical illusion. It was hard to do, because it wasn't like a normal flipbook, merely imitating motion. You had to make it just right and flip it just right, and the observer would think he was seeing the whole image at once. I pinched the corner of the book's pages between my thumb and forefinger. I flipped through them quickly. It took me two tries before I could do it fast enough to get the trick to work. Then it did work. It created the illusion that I was walking up a path to a house. It was my parents' house, the house I grew up in. There was no mistaking the eccentric shape of it. I gazed down at the book, thoughtfully chewing on my tongue. Had Riley made this image for her own pleasure? Was it just an absent-minded game she'd been playing? Or was it a message, a message left specifically for me? Impossible, right? How could she know I'd come here, search the place, find the book, find the drawing? But then how could Bethere's locket have reminded me of that night I'd forgotten? And how had the locket come to me? It had been handed to me on the streets of L.A. by a woman who looked exactly like Elinda, the exiled queen of Galliana. For a moment, my throat tightened, my eyes filled with emotion. Riley was so desperate, and I was so alone. But was it possible that here, even here in this world of wickedness and murder, of conspiracy and corruption, of the mad, cruel arrogance of controlling power, was it possible that a nobody like me and my little lost sister were receiving some secret help from another kingdom? I would go to my parents' house then. That was what Riley's drawing meant, right? Go to our house, Oss. There must be something there she wanted me to find. I set the book aside on the mattress. I got up and limped into the bathroom. It was a tiny space littered with Riley's girl things. The ransackers had hurled them all over the floor. I searched amidst the scents and makeup and hair doodads and found some antibiotic cream and some gauze. I closed the toilet seat and sat on it, rolled up my pants and went to work on my wounded leg. I washed the wounds clean with a damp cloth and spread the cream on them. I bound the ugly mess with the gauze. I needed stitches, I knew that. But this was going to have to do. All the while I was bandaging myself, I was thinking, if Galliana and the Eleven Lands were a fantasy or an hallucination or the symptom of a brain tumor, where the hell did these wounds come from? How could they be so real? When I was done, I limped back out into the studio. As I crossed the threshold, my eyes roamed around the room. I saw where Riley's desk drawer had been pulled out and tossed aside. The contents were scattered in an arc amidst her torn clothing. I spotted a key. I went to the place. I squatted down. The motion made my calf burn. I picked up the key and twirled it in my fingers. It was the key to Riley's Volkswagen. Good. That was good. She'd mentioned the car once or twice, but I'd never seen it, so I hadn't noticed if it was parked in the garage. She might have taken it when she escaped Orozco's thugs, but if she had been clever enough to leave the car behind, I could use it. The police would be looking for the Camaro, not a Volks. I stood. I took one more look around. 
I could not see anything else that would serve as a clue to Riley's whereabouts. Well, then, like it or not, I was off to see my parents. I went to the door, pulled it open, and reeled back in shocked dismay. Oh, God, I groaned aloud. Through the door, through a liquid haze of light, I saw that other world, the cave in Edgemont where the monster had me by the leg, where it was dragging me towards its jaws and an unbearably hideous destruction. One second after I stepped across that threshold, I would be meat for the beast. Next time on Another Kingdom. I couldn't go through that door, not with the dragon waiting for me. I would have to try a leap to the balcony next door. At first glance, the odds I could make such a leap without breaking my neck did not seem good. At second glance, they seemed even worse, but I had to try. I had to try fast, too. My fingers were slipping off the ledge. Grunting, I bent my knees and pressed my sneaker toes against the smooth wall of the building, trying to engineer whatever leverage I could. I leapt. I reached out for the railing. I missed it completely. This has been Another Kingdom by Andrew Claven, performed by Michael Knowles. This episode directed and produced by Jonathan Hay, produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, associate producer, Austin Stevens, edited by Jim Nickel, sound design and mix by Mike Cormina, music composed by Adrian Seeley, hair, makeup, and wardrobe by Jesua Alvera, DIT by Scott Key, and our production assistant is Colton Haas. Visual supervisor, Jake Jackson, Lead illustrator, Rebecca Shapiro. Illustrations by Anthony Clark. Animations by Alvin Tyner and John Dretzka. Another Kingdom is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Forward Publishing 2018.